want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4, and our reading this morning is going to be from verses 13 through 17. Ruth chapter 4, reading verses 13 through 17, hear the word of the Lord. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This ends the reading of God's holy word. May he write its truths on our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for this time with you. And do pray that as you speak, the words will be clear to us. We pray, Father, for the work of the Spirit in our midst today. That these words would become our very life. And that you would do a great work here in our midst today through your Spirit that leads us and guides us into the truth. We thank you for that promise and we cling to it now as we encounter you in your word. We join together today, Father, and lift up those who may not be here because of illness or pain or suffering of some kind, and we pray for your mercy to be upon them. Lord, we pray that you might grant relief from any who are suffering and hurting. We thankful for our dear sister, Carlene Sykes. We miss her dearly, and how we pray, Father, that you might strengthen her body and soul. We pray that you would uplift her and encourage her in her heart. And we pray, Lord, that you please give strength to her body. Lord, we pray for Matthew Nallen today and ask, Lord, for your healing mercy to be shown to Matthew. And we pray, Lord, that you would be his encouragement and that you would give him a, an unusual resolve to press on and continue in the faith and trust you as you provide strength. Lord, we pray for the work of the gospel across this world, and we thank you for those that we've joined with in their gospel endeavors, and how we pray for your blessing upon them. We pray, Lord, for strength and provision and wisdom. And we pray, Lord, that the, the call of the gospel will go out and be effectual and bring in those to whom you have chosen for yourself that there might be a great harvest of souls. Again, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and celebrate today. Thank you for our risen Savior who taught us to pray thusly. Our Father, 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, today is a special day in the life of the church. As we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, we might say that we do that every Sunday. Every Sunday, every worship gathering is a celebration of the Lord's resurrection and ours. But today we pay special attention to the resurrection of Jesus as demonstrated in our songs and our prayers and our scripture reading and now with the preaching of God's Word. Maybe you are a bit surprised uh, to find that this is where we are today. Uh, over the last few weeks, uh, going back, Brother Mark preached uh, a sermon from Luke's Gospel and then I did as well last week and Probably you were thinking, well, that's where we'll be again today. After all, that's where the resurrection is recorded. Well, it is not just recorded in Luke's gospel. In fact, I think, and I hope that I can convince you if you're not convinced, that resurrection is a, a theme that runs all through the Bible. In fact, if we just reference Luke's gospel for a moment, in chapter 24, after his resurrection, Jesus is walking with two unnamed disciples on the road to Emmaus. They are having a conversation. They're, they're discussing all that's happened. And when Jesus joins with them and they don't recognize him, uh, he acts as if he doesn't know what they're talking about. And so they... They explain everything uh, and are amazed that Jesus doesn't know. They say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And then they explain to Jesus that some had been to the tomb that morning, but the body was not there. And then Jesus turns the tables on them admonishing them because they don't know and they should have. Oh, foolish ones, he says, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then Luke 24, 27 says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is later with the disciples and tells them everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus is telling his disciples and he's telling us, when you go back and read your Old Testament, you need to understand that it's about me. They speak of these things, my life and my death, my resurrection. These two disciples, Jesus said, should have known, oh, foolish ones. And I can't help but wonder, 
when Jesus was explaining these things on the road to Emmaus, did he reference the book of Ruth? We don't know. We don't really know what he said. But I can't help but wonder that maybe he did. What I want us to see is that the assumption that I have about this is that the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection is in the book of Ruth. I hope we've seen that by now. But if not, I hope we do now, today, and I want us to recognize how Ruth speaks of the resurrection because I'm convinced that it does. Luke 24, 45 says, Then he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And may our Lord do that for us today. Well, here's the plan. I'm going to begin uh, with the 30,000-foot view, okay? We're going to be looking at all of redemptive history found recorded in the Old Testament, and that's going to be the, the first main point. And then our second consideration is uh, to see how the resurrection is shown for us in the book of Ruth. And so let's begin, and I just want to ask kind of a basic question here. Do we have any examples of resurrection in the Old Testament? And, of course, the answer is yes, we do, right? We know this. Now, interestingly, they happened in the time of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah is staying with a widow in the town of Zarephath, and she has a son who becomes ill and eventually dies. And Elijah prays for her son. And the Lord brings him back to life. Later, there's a, a similar situation with one we might call Elijah's successor, Elisha. And he is also staying with a woman who, uh, her and her husband hosted him whenever he stopped off in their town as he was traveling around. And she has a son who gets ill and dies. And so she sends for Elisha. He's not staying there at the time. He comes to her, her town, to her house, and prays, and the child is raised from the dead. And then we have this very unusual instance in 2 Kings 13 where there is a dead man thrown into a grave that evidently has been unearthed to some degree, and this dead man lands on the bones of Elisha and comes back to life. And so we do have these examples of resurrection, and I think they're important. They inform us at least that resurrection does take place, right? But I don't know even though these are factual events and we believe them to be true, I don't know if they necessarily point to the resurrection of Christ as directly as some other ways do. And let me explain. We have, for example, several prophecies in the Old Testament. And there are many, but I want to just 
give you a couple of examples for time's sake, just, just two. And one that I know you're familiar with is found in Job chapter 19, verses 25 and 26 say this, For I know, and this is Job speaking, that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And of course, we all understand that to be a reference to resurrection, right? Job, one of the earliest books in the Bible, mentions that has his Redeemer lives. Now, I think implicitly, Job is referencing the resurrection of Christ because he knows that when he stands in an eschatological sense on the last day, he will see him which means that his Redeemer, if he's put to death, must come back to life, and Job himself is going to come back to life. Job knows without question that God will make some type of appearance to him before he dies, which that wouldn't make sense, or else he believes in a resurrection, that he and his Redeemer live now, there's one other prophecy that uh, is just as much, if not better known, than this reference here in Job, and it is Ezekiel 37. You all know this, even if you don't know what I'm talking about right now, because you all know the song, right? Hip bone's connected to the thigh bone, and the thigh bone's connected to the shin bone, and on and on and on. We all knew that song, uh, or we did when I was a kid growing up. I don't know if they do that song anymore. Do they still teach that to, to little kids? They should. The Lord takes Ezekiel in a vision to a valley of dry bones. Now, what do dry bones indicate? Uh, in fact, the, the text there tells us in Ezekiel 37 that they are very dry. They're dead, right? Been dead for a while. And Ezekiel is told to prophesy to these bones. And so he does. And they begin to rattle. Can you imagine that sound? Bones coming together, rattling. <laughs> and then sinew begins to attach to these bones. And, and flesh and, and muscles and skin but these bodies that have been formed are lifeless, and the Lord tells Ezekiel, Prophesy to the breath. Come from the four winds, O breath. Breathe on these slain that they may live. And Ezekiel does. And they do, standing on their feet, an exceeding great army, it says. Now, let me address a potential error here that some have wrongfully assigned to this prophecy that Ezekiel is speaking about a resurrection of the nation of Israel uh, in, a, in a national, literal sense. Well, we know 
that this isn't true because later in that chapter, we, we find this phrase, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Now, this is the language of the new covenant. This is New Covenant language. It's language used several times by Ezekiel. It's also used by Jeremiah. It's also used by Zechariah. And it is a phrase that Paul quotes in 2 Corinthians 6.16 as referring to the church, the new Israel. The writer of Hebrews does as well in Hebrews 8.10. No, the correct way to see this event in Ezekiel 37 is actually the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the new Israel who is a type of them, Israel being a type of Christ, and the new creation that Christ accomplishes his church. Now, speaking of types, along with these examples and prophecies of resurrection, and again, there are many, many others but we also have what we call types. Now, we've heard that word, but what does it mean? Um, here is what Mitchell Chase says in his book, 40 Questions About Typology and Allegory. A biblical type is a person, place, or thing in salvation history that corresponds to a later person, place, or thing in the scriptural text. Now, again, we could give a lot of examples of this, but we're only going to uh, give you two today. And one great example is from Genesis 22. Again, this is a story you all know you're very familiar with. It's a story where Abraham is told by God to take his son Isaac, this promised son who he has waited for many, 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 many years. But he has to take this son and to offer him up as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering. And this is a test of Abraham's faith. Uh, this chapter, Genesis 22, begins this way. After these things, God tested Abraham. And so this is a story about Abraham's great faith, but it is also a picture. It's a type. And we know this for several reasons. One, in that story in Genesis 22, there is an interesting reference to the third day. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Uh, we're not going to take the time to do it, but we could do a, a very interesting study, a biblical theological study of this reference throughout Scripture of the third day. And we'll get a very good idea of what this phrase means. But second, we, we have in this story an expression of faith in the resurrection. Or in verse 5, Abraham tells the servants that he's traveled with, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So Abraham knows, okay. God's going to have to do something here very <laughs> unique and supernatural if I'm offering this boy up because he promised me this boy. And Hebrews eleven nineteen confirms this. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did 
receive him back. And then with that, we reach an important conclusion about types. They do not require an actual death and resurrection to picture resurrection. I want to say that again. A type or picture of resurrection does not require a literal death and resurrection. So to see this, I want to give you one more, one more picture, one more type. And again, what are we doing? We're, we're looking, as Jesus has told us in Luke 24, to see how the Scriptures speak of Him rightly interpreted. He says this, Luke 24, 46, Thus it is written, listen to those words, this is Jesus speaking, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. It's there in our Scriptures. That's what Jesus is saying. So we're looking back to see how the scriptures point us to Christ. And this second type that I want to share with you is actually given by the Lord Jesus himself. In both Luke's gospel and in Matthew's, for instance, Matthew 12, 40, Jesus is speaking and he says this, For just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, we know the story of Jonah, don't we? Again, that's a very well-known story. We, we know it from the time we're, we're little kids in Sunday school. God calls him and gives him a message to take to Nineveh. Jonah goes the other way. The opposite direction, he gets on a ship. There is a great storm and... The people on the boat throw Jonah overboard, and he is swallowed by a great fish where he stays three days and three nights. Now, the question that I think deserves asking is, did Jonah die? Probably most of us have always thought, well, no. Why? Because the text does not explicitly state that, does it? But... If you'll look in Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, which is probably the most important chapter in, in that story, we read chapter 1, and, and this is, you know, narrative, and we kind of skip over to chapter 2, and then we get back to the narrative. We want to see what happens in the story. But in chapter 2, Jonah prays, and if this is not a description of death, then I don't know what it could possibly be. He says things like this. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. What is Sheol? Sheol is the abode of the dead for people living in the Old Testament times. He says this, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. Now, if not a literal death, which I think it could be, <laughs> it is indeed a vivid picture of death, is it not? Could Jonah have survived in the belly of a fish for three days? Of course. God could have supernaturally uh, kept him alive. We know that. But either way, by the Lord's own word, Jonah is a type 
of Christ, a picture of death and resurrection. Now, with all of that background in place, we can return to Ruth and see the gospel and particularly death and resurrection pictured here. Uh, we've already seen several important gospel themes, haven't we? In this book, we have seen the providence of God, of Him uh, restoring, sending bread to Bethlehem, the house of bread, His provision and protection over Ruth, His loving kindness shown to everyone in the story, His, His mercy and grace to Naomi and Ruth and even Boaz. Let's begin with Boaz. Uh, how might we see in Boaz a picture of resurrection? Well, what do we know of Boaz? Boaz, for the most part in this book, is presented almost perfectly in a positive sense, isn't he? I mean, there's just really not anything bad about Boaz. He <laughs> is introduced to us in chapter 2 is a relative of Naomi's and a worthy man. And that word worthy is packed. It, it means that he's a man of means, a man of standing, well-known in the community, well-loved. He has servants. He's over a, a good portion of, of land that he manages and he oversees, and he's there firsthand. He comes out and he, he greets everyone in the name of the Lord, right? The Lord be with you. He extends great kindness to Ruth, a, a foreigner, and invites her to, to his table. Remember that? What, a, what an unusual thing that must have been for Boaz and, and all his main guys gathered around, and he reaches out to the foreigner, the farthest one away, and says, hey, you come up here. Come join us. He treats her, though, with respect and grace, not crowding the recently widowed Ruth. He does not pursue her. And yet, for one who is such a a noble picture of a man outstanding in almost every way. Something's missing. What's missing in Boaz's life? He doesn't have a wife. And because he doesn't have a wife, he doesn't have children. Now, it is a difficult thing for us to contextualize this in our day, but in their day, you, you could not imagine what is probably a great deal of, of subdued grief and longing for Boaz because he does not have children. In their day, it, it was as if God had cursed you. Many believed that God had if you didn't have children. There's no one to continue on his name. No one to whom he can give his inheritance. Uh, really, what we have here is a situation with Boaz that is just like the situation with Elimelech. If Ruth doesn't come along, that's going to be Boaz's story. Dying childless. No one to carry on the name. No one to give the inheritance to. He's probably an older man, not 
past childbearing years, but he's not Ruth's age. <laughs> and Ruth is probably about 25 or so, but remember what he told her in chapter 3, verse 10. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. In a culture that would have normally seen a young lady of 15, 16 or so marry a much older man in his 30s, possibly 40, Ruth chooses a man much older than that. Boaz is probably 50 to 60, and yet we never see in him despair or despondency or sadness or bitterness or frustration, nothing but faithfulness to the Lord, trusting in what God is going to do. And for that, the Lord blesses him. And we have this in Ruth 4.13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. The childless one, the old man, gets a wife. And what a wife he has. <laughs> a wonderful woman. And, and now there's hope. Maybe there will be a child produced from this otherwise dead man. And what of Boaz's wife, Ruth? Well, let's consider her for a moment. How do we see the hope of resurrection in her life? Remember, Ruth was a foreigner. She was a Moabite. She was an enemy. About these Moabites, the Lord had said, they will never enter the worship assembly. Remember that? Deuteronomy 23.3. It's an interesting thing if you think about this from Ruth's perspective. Uh, Elimelech, Naomi go off to Moab and their two sons marry Moabite women. Why would these Moabite women marry them in the first place? Could it be that maybe there was a speck of hope in Israel's God? We don't know. We wonder, but soon we do see this hope verbalized in chapter 1, verse 16, after hearing Naomi try to convince her to return, to go back to Moab. This is, this is your best hope for a future, Ruth. Return to your people. And Ruth says this, Where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more so also, if anything but death parts me from you. Is there a better example in all of Scripture of greater devotion? Maybe so, but we would be hard-pressed to find one. Ruth has pledged her life to go and be with Naomi and her people and her God, and it is not contingent on 
At the time she speaks this, there's no thought of, who knows, maybe there's a Boaz out there for me. No! And so Ruth arrives in Bethlehem shrouded in death. Not only literally, she is most likely in mourning attire of a widow, but she's an outsider. She's looked down upon. She has little to no chance of prospects in Israel as a foreigner, no longer a chaste virgin, but a widow who's lost her husband, her father-in-law, her brother-in-law, and has bound herself to a bitter and depressed mother-in-law. What a miserable life awaits Ruth. A life of destitution in which she'll eke out a living by gleaning the leftover grain in the corners of Bethlehem's fields. So there's an upside. <laughs> Ruth won't starve, thankfully. But most likely, she'll grow old. She watches her mother-in-law grow old and wither away. And this will be what happens to her Gleaning year after year, taking care of Naomi, no serious prospects of a husband or children or anything that could be a bright future. Like Boaz, she's a dead-end road. She's left her family, her, her land, everything, and has no husband, no children, no real prospects, nothing really Except Naomi, <laughs> what's that? Ruth is a picture of death. But you know what she has? She has devotion to Israel's God. And that's everything. And look what the Lord does. He provides a redeemer, a wonderful kind, generous, God-fearing, and loving man who will be her new husband. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Did you catch that? The Lord gave her conception. The Lord intervenes and brings life. From hopeless death. Well, we could stop, but we can't stop yet because there's one more person that we need to think about. And that is Naomi. We might wonder why is she even still a part of the story? She's probably in the book of Ruth, everybody's least favorite character, right? I mean, in the beginning, she's this, she's this bitter lady. She doesn't have anything good to say. She's, she's a, a cynic. And then uh, some might say now she appears to be a, a gold digger, <laughs> a schemer. Of these three main characters, did you notice here in the epilogue of the story she gets the most attention. Did you see that? 
uh, in verse 13, it mentions Boaz and Ruth and the marriage and the baby, and then they're, they're pushed aside, and the spotlight shines on Naomi. Naomi? <laughs> That's unusual. I want to just mention that we're going to spend more time on this next week, God willing. This is not a a verse-by-verse verse exposition of the passage per se. But I do want to make an important point of how Naomi's life pictures the resurrection. Now, of these three characters, these three main characters in Ruth, she's the most dead, right? Not that we assign levels of deadness, but... She's <laughs> seems to be more dead than anybody else. She's the oldest. She's the one with the fewest prospects. The grimmest outlook, if we're honest, we would probably all say, you know, if she just kind of faded from the story, that'd be okay, right? She's not adding anything. She's not going to take anything away. Just... But yet she's here, and she's the focus of this last section of Ruth. <laughs> she who is most dead is presented as the one who is most alive, as the one receiving from the Lord more than Boaz and Ruth. Notice that whereas Boaz has been looked to as the Redeemer up to this point, the Redeemer now is this newborn baby. Where have we heard that before? Hmm. You see, Boaz could only be the Redeemer if, if there was going to be a baby boy born to he and Ruth. And so now... We know that as the women speak, they're referring to the baby. He's the Redeemer. We know this because the last reference in verse 13 and there at the end of verse 17, we have what we call an inclusio, brackets that begin and end with the same subject. But notice this at the end of verse 17. A son has been born to Naomi. Not in the literal sense, but in a legal sense, and more importantly, in a figurative sense. Naomi is put into the category of all those famous women we know in the Bible who were childless, who were barren, who were elderly, And for whatever reason, either due to barrenness or, or maybe not having a husband, they could not have children like Sarah, well past the age to be able to conceive a child. And Rebecca and Rachel, as we saw already mentioned up in verse 11, and Hannah, who probably about this time or, or within a few years is having a baby boy named Samuel. 
From an empty womb, long past the time of producing life, God brings life, or as Paul puts it in Romans 4.17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This story comes together in a way that only God could do it. These three moving parts. A Hebrew lady. A Gentile lady. They become in-laws. They come to Bethlehem. This saintly man, well-known and beloved, comes into the picture. Only God could do this. And through his use of each one in the other's life, he works to bring a newborn baby boy that they will name Obed, who is a type of Christ. The writer of the book of Ruth puts prophetic words on the lips of the women who surround Naomi and speak these words. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Wow. These words belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has died for us and descended to the place of the dead and is risen indeed. And he has done this for you. And if you believe in him, you have done this with him. What great news. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, how thankful we are for the good news of the gospel found throughout the pages of your holy word. We thank you for these words of hope, these words of life that speak of our risen Savior whose life we celebrate today, whose life has been wrought in us who believe that he is our Savior and that he is risen indeed. Please work in our hearts, Father, as only you can, so that we might know the life of Christ more and more, we pray this in his name. Amen.